0: Hello, I am Pastor Kim Fox, and it is truly an honor to be able to open God's Word, uh, especially at this time of the year. And so as Good Friday and Easter approach, I would like to consider uh, those final moments before our Savior's arrest, trial, and crucifixion, when He took three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, aside and began to pour out His heart perhaps like never before. We will follow the unfolding of this event as recorded in Mark chapter 14. This text truly brings us into a domain full of mystery. It's an exceptional moment in the life of our Savior, where he allows us a glimpse of the reality of his humanity, and especially of the weight of the burden that he carried all through his life. The Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and that during his whole life he endured the grievous contradiction of sinners against himself. However, in the Garden of Gethsemane, God allows us to see, at least partially, the depth of agony that Jesus experienced. Let us, therefore, enter into the Garden with him as observers and with a sincere attitude of reverence in order to understand some of the mystery that is therein revealed. But before we read the text, here is an overarching thought and challenge for each of us to keep in mind as recorded in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become discouraged, weary in your souls. You have not yet resisted to blood, striving against sin." Now, as we follow the text in Mark chapter 14, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version, I need to add that this is one of those stories that is best understood when all four gospel accounts are compared. And notice that the gospel accounts, far from contradicting one another, really complete each other perfectly. And so, while primarily reading from Mark 14... You will see on the screen some additional phrases that are added in the other Gospels and that provide a fuller picture of all that transpired. But before we get into the text, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity and privilege to open your word and to consider uh, this remarkable moment in your life time of true anguish, true sorrow, I pray, Lord God, that as we consider the events that transpired, you would fill us with the wonder of the depth of sorrow that you experienced, but also the magnitude of your love that constrained you to go there. And so, Lord, give us understanding, open our eyes, that we might appreciate The great truths that are found in this text. And we ask your blessing as we preach your word this morning. Thank you, amen. So let's go to our text in Mark uh, chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. We read Then they came, and John adds, over the brook Kidron, and then Luke adds, to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed. They came to a place which is named Gethsemane. And then John, John gives this commentary where there was a garden. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. So, Jesus and the disciples went to Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And the word Gethsemane means oil press. And they entered into a garden, which I was actually able to visit when I was in Israel. Now, most people enter gardens in order to admire the beauty of God's creation, uh, to enjoy a time of relaxation and tranquility. But for Jesus, this was neither a time of relaxation nor of tranquility, but rather a time of deep solitude, deception, and betrayal. Even more astounding Although Jesus knew exactly what awaited him in this place, he went there nonetheless, as he was accustomed, says the text. For he had a divine appointment that evening, as he himself stated, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Truly, Jesus' death was no accident Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus himself had foretold that just a short time earlier, that same evening. But instead of avoiding this place, which Judas knew perfectly well, Jesus decided to go there with his disciples. It was truly Jesus' voluntary choice to die. He himself makes a statement in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Let's continue. Verse 33. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled, Matthew adds, and sorrowful and deeply distressed. This text helps us to understand to what extent Jesus suffered And how it is that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Being truly man, Jesus himself knew what it means to be troubled, to be distressed, to be filled with sorrow. And so he understands us better than anyone because he was tempted in all points as we are. He who became man knows the fragility and the weaknesses of the human body. Dear friends, Jesus knows everything you feel when you are alone, when you're sad, when you wrestle with fear and distress. He understands, and even more importantly, He cares. Now, this text also shows us that it is not a sin to experience moments of sadness or of fear or even of anguish. All of these emotions are part of our human experience, which Jesus also experienced. The danger is to allow any of these emotions to dominate and to control our lives and then to act or make decisions based on these passing emotions rather than on the unchanging principles and commandments of God's Word. That is, during times of difficulty, sadness, or distress, We are to act right and choose right. Our emotions don't give us a pass to act out in anger or frustration, but rather we're to do the right thing even when we don't feel like it. Jesus demonstrates that truth beautifully by entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, even though that was the very last place he wanted to be because that was God's will for him. Continuing, Verse 34, then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch, Matthew adds, with me. Luke says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Here the Lord shows us the right way to react when we wrestle with fear and sadness, which is not to withdraw and to shut everyone out and to feel sorry for ourselves, but rather to seek the support of other believers while also and especially turning to God in prayer to find strength and help in a time of need. But why was Jesus so deeply full of sorrow? As our text says, exceedingly sorrowful. Obviously, the terrible physical death which awaited him accounted in part for his troubled spirit. But there was something even more terrible than that that troubled him so much. It was the fact that he who was without sin would shortly have to take on himself the sin of the world. That is, the Holy Son of God was to become sin for us. Imagine if you can, all the filth of the world, all the obscenities, all the murders, every lie, the wickedness, all the hatred, every horrible act. That is what Jesus became on the cross, as if he himself had committed all those atrocities. And then, worst of all, in order to pay the full price of our sin, Jesus would be forsaken by his Father. God the Father would be forced to turn his back on God the Son, Indeed, by accepting to die on the cross for our sin, Jesus became a curse for us. And there on the cross, not only would the perfect fellowship with his Father be broken, but he would also have to suffer the righteous wrath of God for sin. The cup of wrath which we deserve because of our sin would be poured out on him. That is why he was exceedingly sorrowful. Verse 35, he went a little farther about a stone's throw, according to Luke, and fell on the ground and prayed. And here, there's an interesting comment in Hebrews chapter 5, referring to this same event, the same moment here, that says that he prayed with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him interesting to point out here in Greek the phrase that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him is a what we call a first class conditional sentence, which means that the statement, if it were possible, was assumed to be true. So Christ looked at this request as a true possibility that is the possibility of being spared from what awaited him. And since Jesus did not go far from the other disciples about a stone's throw, and since, according to what we read in Hebrews, he prayed with strong, vehement cries in the still of the night, then the disciples most certainly could hear him praying, or at least catch parts of what he prayed. Therefore, even though these three men did eventually fall asleep and That's not all that surprising, since according to verse 37, Jesus prayed for about an hour. Even though these men did eventually fall asleep, they surely heard at least some of what Jesus said in his prayer, which explains why his words were so distinctly engraved in their memories. Verse 36, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And again, in Greek, there's an emphasis on the word I and you. Not on what I will, but on what you will. When When praying, Jesus always spoke to God as his Father. Even here, when he uses an Aramaic word, he does not say Jehovah or Yahweh, but Abba, which means my Father or Papa, a term commonly used by Jewish children when addressing their fathers. And it's interesting that in Romans chapter 8, when the Bible talks about our relationship to God and how we can come to Him in prayer, it says, You have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Which truly highlights what a glorious privilege we have to address God as our Father. And so Jesus in his prayer says, God, all things are possible for you. Now, we know that even if God can do anything, there are certain things that he will not do. For one, he will not change what is written in Scripture. And so what he has said, he will do. What he has promised, he will make good. According to Jesus' own words, Not a jot or tittle shall pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Therefore, since it was written that the Christ should be the substitutionary victim for our sins, it could not be otherwise. In the same way, since it is written in John 14, no one comes to the Father but through Christ. Then we can also know with certainty that there is only one path which leads to heaven and one alone, and that is through personal faith in Jesus Christ as one Savior. Now, what is the meaning of this cup when the Lord asked, take this cup away from me? Well, notice the parallel with verse 35, when Jesus prayed that this hour might pass from him. Hour and cup referring to the same thing. And if you go to John chapter 18... Just as Jesus was being arrested, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Therefore, the cup, or the hour, clearly refer to his death on the cross and to all the suffering and rejection that went with it. But then Jesus adds in his prayer, Not what I will, but what you will. Here we see the two natures of Christ. Although he was truly God, he was also man. His will as a man in a human body would obviously have preferred to avoid all that awaited him. But, as the Son of God, he came to do the will of the Father, which was also his will as the divine Son. How much more then when we pray, this specific phrase should punctuate our prayers as well. Father, not my will, but thine be done. Indeed, the most miserable person is the one who wants his own way and nothing else. However, true contentment only comes by submitting our will to the perfect will of God. In fact, a great prayer taken right from Hebrews chapter 13 is for us to say, Lord, May you make me complete in every good work to do your will. And Paul's he prays in Colossians for believers, Colossians chapter 4. And his prayer for believers is that we may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That is what Christ sought. That is what he desired above all. Well, at this point, Luke then adds this commentary. Luke says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The text says that the Father sent this angel to strengthen Jesus, as was in fact stated in Psalm 91, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Likewise, the Bible says elsewhere, the angel of the Lord encamps around about those who fear him. What a wonderfully comforting promise to all those who truly fear God. Nonetheless, the appearance of this angel notwithstanding, Jesus' agony was still very real and very intense. In fact, for those who may think that Jesus' suffering was not real because he was God, this verse dispels that idea and reveals what truly transpired. How in the great depth of agony that he felt at this point. In fact, Jesus' anguish... Was so intense that some think that the capillaries under his skin dilated to the point of producing ruptures, causing his blood to mix with his sweat. At any rate, the text is clear that Jesus was in great agony. We continue reading in verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping, Luke adds from sorrow, and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour, Matthew, with me? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words, Matthew, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy Luke, then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter temptation. And they did not know what to answer him, Matthew. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. Then he came the third time and said to them, sleep on now and take your rest. And that last phrase is from the King James Version. I'll explain why in a second. And so this scene is repeated three times where Christ goes away to pray and then comes back to his disciples, finds them sleeping, goes away to pray, comes back and does that three times. And although the disciples failed the Lord in his great moment of need, nonetheless, he persevered in prayer until he had victory and thus strengthened in his spirit, he was ready to face all that was to transpire. But noticed that through the entirety the, this lengthy spiritual battle taking place, Jesus never forgot his disciples. First, he cautions them and encourages them to watch and pray, knowing their weakness and anticipating their imminent failure when put to the test. He takes full advantage of the situation to teach them certain important truths about themselves, notably. Our inclination to sin when he says that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He also talks to them about prayer, how incredibly vital prayer is for battling temptation. As he points out and says, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. But once he finishes praying that third time and comes back to them, I can imagine the Lord making the last statement, not in a scolding manner, but out of sympathy and concern, kind of as expressed in the King James Version. I can see our Lord kneeling down beside them, his arms around their shoulders, wishing to give them a final sense of reassurance just before their world was to seemingly fall apart. Almost as if to say to them, my children, do not worry, be at rest. I have everything at hand. No need to panic. I have this. And then he stated his last words before pandemonium would break out. It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The critical moment had come. This was the hour for which he came. This was the prelude to the baptism with which he was to be baptized. The Son of Man was now to be delivered into the hands of sinners to be crucified. The price for sin must be paid. And thankfully, rather than leave us to face the wrath of God for our sin, Jesus chose to die in our place. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be bruised for our iniquities. He would be oppressed and afflicted and yet would not open his mouth. Indeed, it would please the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief for our salvation. And the message of the Bible is perfectly clear it is only by personal faith in Christ that a sinner can be forgiven, cleansed of all our sin, and declared righteous in God's eyes. How is that possible? Because Christ was willing to die for us in our place because He loves us so. And so to conclude, dear friend, as you consider this text and the great truths expressed in it, where does it leave you? Have you ever admitted to God that you are a lost, hell-bound sinner who needs God's forgiveness? If not, you can pray right now where you are and confess your sin to the Lord and then invite the Lord Jesus into your life, asking Him to save you from sin and from hell. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's God's promise to you, to me. And if that's your need, would you pray right now? Call upon the Lord and ask him to save you. But for all of us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, let's pray and give thanks to the Lord for His great mercy and for the fact that He was willing to give the full measure of His life for our eternal salvation. Dear Lord, we do want to thank You now, Father, that You chose to reveal all these momentous events in your word, these intimate moments when you were in such agony, suffering, and despair to help us to appreciate the greatness of the sacrifice that you made for our sin and for our salvation. And so, Lord, indeed, that should fill us with wonder. It should fill our hearts with gratitude to think that you took our sin upon yourself paid the full price, and now offer us the free gift of eternal life. Lord, words can't express to what extent we are thankful for that. But Lord, we thank you now as we go through this season of Easter, thinking about not only your death, but your resurrection, and to know that through that, Lord, we also have newness of life. And so help us, Lord, to live each day according to your will. Help us to live each day for your honor and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.